Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today I'm joined by Claire Campbell. Claire Campbell, having found her inner rebel with a cause, founded the Prickly Thistle in 2015, a new purpose that will weave everything she cared about into a single passion. Claire's rebel journey was clear to her, despite the difficulties that she knew lay ahead. She had to restore a future for powerful storytelling tartan designs and eventually return artisan tartan weaving skills and disrupted production collections back in the highlands of Scotland. Prickly Thistle was destined to become a brand of endurance. Claire Campbell, welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast from the very north of England, I think. Is that correct? Oh, where, where I'm based? Oh, gosh. Yes. I'm, I'm a little bit further north, um, Sean. I am, um, yeah, about uh, just half an hour north of Inverness, the Highland capital. So I'm way up in the north of Scotland. <laughs> right. And I stand corrected. I did say the north of England. Um, the north of, yeah. United, of the United Kingdom. Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. We're on the same island, but we're yeah, we're 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 quite we're quite near the top. <laughs> wow. I'm in fact I'm going to um, Stornoway on Monday okay. to visit Harris yeah. Tweed. Yeah. So so yeah. So we're kind of yeah on parallel a little bit with them in terms of the northern the northern hemisphere line, but yeah, we're quite far up there. Just yeah, obviously a little bit off to the west. Brilliant. Great. Well. So, uh, yes, so welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Uh, I wanted to start our conversation just to get um, a little bit of information about you, you know, how you got into weaving tartan. Yeah, it's a very, very long story. And I'm sure we could take up a whole season of your podcast, possibly. Um, But yeah, it's um, it really came from largely from a personal perspective. realization space of yeah what's what's all about life is so incredibly short and uh, yeah my background is completely not what people think often um in the sense that I trained as a chartered accountant which considered is considered not a very creative job and I say all the time if it is you end up in jail um so I wanted to go off and do um something something that yeah creative itch but really um tartan the first thing for me was really about head and heart Head was economics, you know, in terms of what do I know about this sector for Scotland? We are world famous for it. Heart was I was completely fall or I had completely fallen in love with the whole concept of legacy and identity. Um, and that goes through typically from losing somebody you love um, too soon. So, so yeah, so that was really the drive. I was this accountant, but I had this, yeah, this, I was clear. I was a human. I had, you know, feelings and I wanted to bring these two together and make what I did every day as a vocation really count for something that um, I thought was way more important than stuff. So was this a quite an intensive learning curve for you coming from accountancy and then stuff? I mean, did you have any knowledge about weaving and tartan and? Not a thing. Not a thing that I have. A massive learning curve. Embracing the the quote of Richard Branson, inexperience is your greatest asset. Um, yeah, not not a clue. Never done anything like this in my life. Never used a sewing machine, never wove, never knitted, didn't know the difference between yarn, one yarn matrix and the other. Um, and in the four years that we have been operating as a textiles mill, um, and just to throw in there, we are announcing later this month and um, that we're the only B Corp certified mill in the whole of the UK, which is where we 
constitutionally say that we put planet and people before profit. So yeah, so I didn't have any training. Um, I just yeah, just wanted to learn. I wanted to help. I wanted to create something. Um, back in the region. Um, so history's massive. Tartan. That's another whole podcast when we talk about the history of Tartan. Um, and why is it so um loved around the world? But in the region that I live in, which is the Highland region, lots of definitions over where the Highland starts and ends, changes over the centuries. But the, 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 the modern definition, we are the only textiles mill that weaves tartan in the mainland Highland region. So I wanted to bring it back to its ancestral home in many ways. You know, tartan is iconically connected to Highland dress. Um, Highland dress was banned in some forms after Culloden. So it only felt right to try and put as much integrity, provenance, cultural appreciation back into a sector that I had fallen in love with purely from its symbolic meaning of identity and legacy so so yeah so no training um at all um and just wait for it really so what what drives you what drives me because <laughs> you sound like this is um you're on a mission it sounds like you're on a mission I'm on a mission yeah so that mission five six years ago was how could I leave my role in oil and gas um, culturally, um, commercial exploitation, priorities over profit, um, arrogance, lots of things that I just thought, this is not who I am. This is not what Claire wants to be part of for the next 30 years. Is this the mother I want to be? Yes, I can buy whatever I want for my children. But actually, I don't feel very proud. So I made that change and yeah, so for me, it was like, okay, bring back weaving to the Highland region of Scotland. It's not there. How can we do it? How can we do it in the most honourable way um, that is actually creating jobs for people? This is understanding business models that other people have copied in the country, where there's been business failure, where there's been degrees of business success. And for me, it was about going back to actually let's make it as authentic as we can. And so that was kind of the first part of it. And Really, it was when we set up the mill, it was just simple things. There was no agenda. There was no marketing plan behind any of this in the sense of we'll use green energy. We'll use these beautiful looms that were built to last. We'll use these old looms because actually they need people to operate them. And um, we, when we weave our fabric, we're going to make products that actually has no waste. Because actually, it was really difficult to weave fabric. Why would we cut 25% of it and put it on the cutting room floor for an ill-fitting garment? No, let's let's try and, you know, crack that code let's not go on a you know did I say Savile Row tailoring course I'm going to sit there and say to these people show me a zero waste design course where we can make garments like the great old kilt that didn't waste anything was really easy to recycle really easy to reuse minimal hardware how radical is that so um so yeah so I um yeah just just didn't know but I just asked questions. Maybe the audit training in me was very much investigator mode. But really, um, as I say, we did all of those things because for me, it felt like the right thing to do. Um, two years in pandemic, two years pandemic, you know, massive, another threat to humanity. Um, horrific situation in Eastern Europe at the moment. But also I've learned so much about climate change, so much about the UN SDGs you know, the, the slavery, the poverty, um, the destruction um, that basically humans are doing without a pandemic and without a war. And we're doing this every day because we are slightly, you know, we're very much unconscious to the massive role we play on these things. And I think, you know, um, for me, I had this massive awakening 
because prior to all of this, I was one of those women who proudly, um, not so much now, has a wardrobe full of highly flammable clothes made by slaves. Um, I know I can't give that away to anybody because I'm passing on the buck of pollution. I'm passing on this waste problem to another country. So in this time, I realised not only from the clothes that we wear, but actually my whole house. You know, you look at the fabrics on your sofa, you look at the fabrics on your wall, you look at the fabric of your car. Your car is made of carbon fibre panels. That is another form of fabric. Fabrics were the first invention, uh, innovation, technology of man, um, you know, create woven fabrics from natural materials to travel the world, Christopher Columbus. But fabrics are in everything. And yeah, so in this last couple of years, I've just realised this overwhelming, wow, fabric crosses every sector. It's not just clothing, it's engineering, it's construction, it's housing, it's medical. We now have people in, in Scotland lying in sheets that are half made of oil because they're cheaper than buying pure cotton sheets. Um, so, so really the passion now has become not just about how do we have this um, sort of fabric of rebellion and bring the, the, the kind of, you know, the authentic way of bringing, of weaving tartan back to this region of Scotland and create jobs in this area and do it in an authentic way. It's now a battle for the fabric of the planet. And you realise very, very quickly um, how how significant textiles are is the second most destructive industry globally. It's literally in everything. You know, every big COP26 here last year and everybody in that room, how many of them were wearing oil? <laughs> and that was the fabric, you know, that they had on. And most people didn't realise. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we've, we've learned so much about natural fibres. We've learned so much about um, anti-mass manufacturing we've learned so much about the modern slavery we've learned so much about the circular economy the closing of the loop um, and it's just really all stemmed from my passion of bringing back something that was part of our past but the past worked because we made we only made what we needed we didn't you know we made things in a multi-sizing way we, we made things to be reused etc so um so yes yeah, so it's gone from yeah, but let's bring back the weaving to the Highland region of Scotland and do it as authentically as we can um, to now realising there's a massive responsibility and we now feel like we're part of this, yeah, this global um, sort of change that needs to happen, this mindset, this awakening to actually fabrics are the elephant in the room quite often when it comes to these major, major issues. Wow. Okay. So there's quite a lot of stuff to unpick there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so from what drives you, we've got quite a substantial. Um, I mean, we've got a tanker driving you at the moment, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. That's made of you, wool. Just throwing you, that out there. Yeah, yeah. Is that you, can't, you can't make tanks from wool. I, we, we, we've kind of we've, we've looked into it. <laughs> right. So, I mean, just taking um, bits of what you've said. I mean, so you you are driven predominantly by the impact that others or we are having on the planet and trying to kind of in, in kind of make amends um for the you know for the damage that we've um done what then inspires you yeah i mean what inspires me gosh um inspires me is the or inspires me, challenges me, um, inspires me that those people who will take on what people say is impossible and not worthwhile. What inspires me is those people out there who, 
are brave enough to speak out. What's your starting point in addressing the issues that you've raised? Yeah, so it's yeah, so one is one is obviously understanding the whole um sort of circular chain of that from raw materials virgin or recycled right through to closing of the loop of fabric beyond its use to be recycled again. So I I landed in the weaving side of or little segment of that circle and very quickly realized, oh my God, where is the whole supply chain? Where's everybody gone? And and um and yeah, we weren't they weren't supported. You know, we very much global trade's an amazing thing. We do need it, but we we did um yeah, there was the lure of maybe cheaper imported items. Um so yeah, so the supply chain had very much um yeah, had cut pretty much disappeared to nearly nothing. So we landed in weaving. So I have then in the last four years of being here has really tried to kind of go round this circle several times and understand who's left, what did we do in the past, what do we know now, what can we do in the future. So as a B Corp business, we're very upfront um, and we'll be actually the first B Corp, I think, to actually fully disclose our scoring within the impact areas. So we did really well in some areas, we've done really bad in other areas and we know that. Um, but we're upfront and honest about it. It's our keeping it real pillar that we are really going to sort of really promote and inspire people to say it's okay when you get things wrong and, and it's good to talk about it. So for us, we we weave. So yes, you've seen these century old looms. We've saved them. They were made in the early 20th century. This was when we made things that were built to last. You know, everybody talks about, oh, my kettle doesn't last three years. My phone doesn't this, that. You know, pe- these big corporates are building in obsolescence because it's part of their revenue model. It's their commercial exploitation of us as consumers. It's creating massive amounts of unnecessary waste. So when people built these machines, they didn't have that in mind. They were so proud of what they were doing. They wanted to make this that it lasted forever. You know, that was a time when we knew that it was a good thing. Um, So we've really um, become custodians for them as very much symbols of this is when um, industry built things to last and we worked alongside people we didn't go industry 4.0 mad and get everybody out because we wanted to give them as some people say the value added jobs no you you wait for them to retire and you never replace them because your cost of labor goes down massively when you can have a machine do everything for you it doesn't have a baby it doesn't go off on holiday it doesn't get sick you know so, you know, people can justify that they're going to give the value added jobs to the people. You know, we all know certain industries have now got far less people involved. Food, massive food processors, drink processors, they have way less people. And we've made food and drink really cheap. And now we probably eat too much food and drink too much drink. And we've probably, we definitely throw out too much food. We need to make these things, they should be more expensive. Um, so, yeah, so we, we've landed in weaving. Very quickly, we're we well we we've got our supply chain map online, so people can see where we buy things from. So it's very, for us, it was if it exists in Scotland, we work with them. And um, one is from a kind of B Corp perspective is that you know when you're working with people in specific countries where they have health, they have employers' right employees' rights, they have health and safety protection in place, they have environmental agencies. So in Scotland, we have the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency. Um, so you're working within a, a country has an infrastructure that puts things in place to protect people and the planet and the you know the environment around it. So so working predominantly through the UK. So we source our yarns um, and we buy these in um, mostly from a Scottish um, couple of Scottish mills. 
And admittedly, sadly, they're not using massive amounts of Scottish native fibres. That's plant and animal. They're not. It's imported merinos and cashmeres. Um, so two years ago, maybe three years ago, we've started projects with academia. So we're now working on a project um, with a group of scientists in Edinburgh to see how we can actually make thick hair thin. And um, this is taking the native fleeces of the UK and using um, natural enzyme degradation to actually just take um, a thick hair and make it thin. And it's just protein when you start to look at the science behind it. There's so very many, there's very, very basic things we can do to make a thick hair thin. You think about human hair. I mean, the human hair is no same, no difference to an animal hair. So yes, yeah, so we've started this project um, to get these native fleeces and add value to them because they're mostly being exported for the carpet industry. So I, I want to talk a bit about um, tartan and luxury now. I want to ask you about tartan um, because that's what you do um, at the Prickly Thistle. Yeah. Tell us just a, a, a brief um, synopsis of kind of the origins of tartan. Where did it, you know, we know it's national dress um, up in Scotland. Just give us a, a brief summary of its history, if you, if that's possible. Well, oh, that, you're asking the impossible, Sean. Um Lots of lots of stories um, around tartan. And really the only story that we, is the kind of most common and well uh, popular popularised, if you like, by Scotland, is everything post-Culloden, which was actually, you know, mid-18th century. We've been, you know, wearing clothes for a lot longer than that in Scotland. But anyway, um, so mid-18th century, Culloden, this stuff was banned, you know, these crazy people in the Highlands, you know, my folk. Um, we're kind of like, no, we're going to stand up for what we believe in, and we're going to put our we're going to put our coat of arms on, which is this this you know this fabric, this colours. You know, you think about football teams today; everyone identifies with uh, a form of uniform, a form of armour. So it was banned, and um, nearly forty years, and um, banned exclusively. You know, there's a there's greedy as whatever, but it was used to quash that team spirit, shall we say? Um, so really, tartan that most people have fallen in love with and romanticised and on the TV, film, etc., diaspora, is this beautiful romantic notion of clan systems and clan tartans and where all of this has come from. And it very much was much of, you know, it was very much the birth child of um, two Englishmen, <laughs> um, Sebesky Stewart's, who, um, after the repeal of, of the ban of tartan, saw this opportunity, you know, everyone's calmed down in Scotland, you can have your colours back now, and very much most of it was made up there and then, you know, these clan tartans. So the clan system is is history, it's factual, but its origins are maybe not quite what people are aware of. So, so that's what most people think of. And when we say we're a tartan mill, everyone jumps to, oh, I'm that part of this clan, I'm part of this and part of that, and we go, we don't, we don't make clan tartans. And we don't do it for a, uh, out of, we're disrespectful or, or anything like that. What we have is a Highlander's honour. So a couple of things there. One is I question the, you know, the beginnings and the root of that. And I'm pushing people's, you know, very strong stereotypes to go pre-1745. Um, how, how creative were we um, with with our weave styles, etc., because tartan has become to be known as very rigid twill woven fabric. And I don't think it was always woven twill, to be honest. I think we would have had a little bit more creativity, but it was commercially better to bang out a lot of the same stuff. So this so basically shirts were very entrepreneurial. 
but um so so we don't weave tartan one is yeah one is my historical kind of disruptive kind of take on the on that that actually I want to think people to think about pre you know the 200 years before that what could we have done with it and um, but also um out of respect for the rest of the textiles industry there was very very few mills left in Scotland seven in ten people in the 1830s were involved in textiles we now have next to nothing you know largely speaking compared to other sectors and the clam tartan system and demand is their bread and butter so when we started our mill we're one of the youngest in Scotland it was about come in and complement and don't displace you know I respect all of these people I got to know them all really well I understood the business compromises they had to make for something that is one of our icons um, and you know that must be hard to make all of those compromises so this is a huge part of their business huge part of their existence so for us it was a case of how can we come back to the highlands how can we bring back the weaving of tartan but how can we write the narrative of what they'll say in 200 years so we have this two three hundred year story very much being kind of centered on you know the story of the battle, the story of these people, and then the clans coming back, and then the diaspora, which came from horrific clearances and what have you. You know, there's a lot of tragedy behind all of what we really celebrate today. So for me, in 200 years, knowing what I know about the fabric of the planet, how can this amazing fabric that gives people courage and spirit to speak out and fight for what they believe in be part of the biggest battle of our of our times? You know, and therefore knowing how important fabrics are to everything, then actually to have tartan, you know, take on that 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 mission, but use its ability to rally people together, its ability to have people have conversations, ability to restore pride, um, and very much the you know the paradox of looking at the past when I say about things being made with no waste and things being made of natural materials and things that could be reused. You know all these really basic things that we've kind of lost in this last fifty years and the rise of fast fashion and the rise of consumption. So the tartan you make is it's all new. There's a definite element of craftsmanship because what you're doing is new. You're doing smaller runs. You're very conscious of waste, so you don't produce any yeah. waste in terms of the craftsmanship and paying um authenticity to tartan design so tartan design is you know based, we have an act um of, you know a, put in place 2008 act um, which re officially recognized the register of tartan so we we record all of these things along with birth deaths and marriages in scotland and it defined what is a tartan um and for some people they call it a check or a plaid or you know and and it and it can be. It is a design of you know symmetry and asymmetry of you know a correlation of colours in horizontal and vertical lines, the warp and the weft and the technical kind of weaving side of things. For us as a business, it's defining what should tartan, what was the whole ethos and sentiment around tartan, and it was really about community and message. It was about showing I stand with you. So you wear those colours. You have those fabrics in your home that is you're a part of this you know this kind of tribal you know being and this is now in the context of the 21st century when we are a global nomadic society and for us as a business we are not inclusive to bloodlines you know it's very much it is for everyone the act does not say you need to have scots blood to wear tartan you need to have scots blood to have your own tartan and, you know it's basically a way of celebrating identity and you know, kinsmanship and, and, and community. And I think that's so, we talk about that in every context 
um, in every conversation around the world and, and, you know, and how we are as towns, villages, businesses, you know, political governments, etc., NATO, you name it, where, you know, it's like community is so important. So we want to really emphasise the importance of that. And we create designs that reflect the the passion and the story of those communities. But we make sure that every colour and every single thread count have meaning. And, you know, it ties back to uh, uh, you know, a colour of significance in their life or in their organisation. It ties back to a number of significance. Um, so we take their story and we try to weave their story into the fabric. Just picking up on on some of what you've said around community and meaning, when you talk about meaning in, you know, thread count, meaning in placement of a um, weft or warp. It's, it's, it's a privilege. Without a doubt, you know, I would see it as a privilege um, and an honour. I would maybe use those words, you know, luxury. Um, life is a luxury and it's like many words I feel conflicted with just now. It's like so many words are hijacked for commercial exploitation. Um, you know, why would, you know, you see people using certain words because we know the Google results will get the target customer we're looking for because this is the word they're into. And I and I feel quite often luxury has been dragged into a more exclusive elitist society. Um, and, you know, in the sense of, you know, premium luxury, you know, has been, you know, just from the world of commercial, commercialising or the world or, or when you're creating products. And it's very, you know, in particular in fashion, you know, it's like, are you when somebody would say, are we a luxury brand? And we sit alongside these other luxury brands and I say, well, we feel like we're so different because fundamentally, when you start to unpick who we are and what we're about, you know, just to use that one word to describe us is, you know, is it feels, um, yeah, it feels limiting. It's like the word sustainable right now is another word. You know, people say they're sustainable and you go, what does that mean? Just tell me a bit about the people you work with. Yeah, so we started off just, you know, the sort of three, four of us. <laughs> um, but now we have, you know, there is 15 of us here and we have somebody in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s all working here at the mill. So so you would have seen those very early films that we did. Um, and, but yeah, so we, we have every demographic um, and we have people who have never done anything like this before. But we've all come together based on, you know, sort of purpose and passion for our learnings around fabrics in general and our relationship with fabrics and what we try to sort of remind people. We're saying we don't need to learn anything anymore. We're just trying to get people to remember that actually we used to be a lot happier with less. We used to be a lot happier when we could connect with the maker, the the the, the journey, the story, um, you know, the who, the why, the where. And um, there was something really special about that. You know, we we used to save up for things. You know, we used to wait for things. We knew they were one of very few. And that just took on this whole other meaningful relationship um, with the, the things that fill your life. You know, because when we're not here anymore, the, you know, we, ha- we we leave something behind. And, you know, quite often we, we, we're leaving a lot of oily bags <laughs> with some of the stuff that we're, ba- we're, we're consuming. So, um, so, yeah, so we've got everyone in every age range working here. And, um, you know, they're an incredibly resilient and passionate bunch of people. If you are engaging in a process which um, speaks to the customer in the way that you do, that becomes a luxurious experience because you don't experience that when you walk into a shop and buy your oily bag, as you say. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely, you know, highly flammable oily bag that we you know we put on our kids at Halloween. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I think it's rare. You know, the you know the rare and the real. You know, what have we learned in this last two years? How sacred, how important the rare and the real is. Whether you talk about fake news, whether you're talking about imitation, whatever. So rare and real. So I think yes, um. Back when I said I was going to um, start this mill and buy these old looms that I had no one to work, everyone had abandoned them and gone to super fast looms because they could produce way more with less people. Um, everyone thought I was nuts. Um, but for me, they were so symbolic of um, economic um, economic balance, but also that meaningful relationship we have with these things in our life that are you know they're one is relationships with other human beings but these physical objects are so intrinsic to that and the kind of awakening and myself included I look I've got so much stuff in my house I don't feel connected to at all you know oh that was an offer that was the you know that was when I look at something that I know and I've met the person who made it or I've read their story on their website or I've seen films about them. I read about their mission. I read about their purpose led, you know, tenacity. I think I feel super proud to say in some way I've been a philanthropic consumer. I've got this beautiful item. but I have actually given the money um my money, which I'm going to spend anyway. We're all going to spend this money because we can't die with it all either. Um, you've kind of you've really you've you've funded the good guys you know and it's you know we use the analogy of don't know don't buy you know we talk about you know the you know sdg goal number one for the un is ending poverty and we talk about this kind of wealth divide and this equalization we talk about people in poverty we talk about it's you know people who are of lower incomes can't afford to be sustainable and you know when we think we need to make and this is where some brands justify making cheap stuff because what would the poor people do and i go whoa wait a minute these people need good jobs these you know get your machines out and get people in you know and actually give them a good job they should be entitled to be able to access the same quality as everybody else don't just justify your business model because you you know they need to buy cheap stuff and um but these these looms are very symbolic of before the balance was tipped a little bit. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think I'd like to think that everybody who owns a piece of prickly has kind of just has come from this home of and place of passion. You know, there were so many hands involved. Um and hopefully our purpose and our messaging around you know, just our authenticity and our just our realness. You know, as I say, I would say like the things we're good at and the things we're not good at, but we try and we want to be part of something that I think is for everyone's children. And the relationship to the things we consume and invest in is so so important to the luxury of life. You know, to have to actually have, um, yeah, to have that luxury of life. You know, we kind of take it for granted a little bit, and I think because it's not we're not all been able to fast forward to 100 years if we do nothing and carry on what is 100 years from now look like you know and I think yeah we, we yeah so um I think um yeah people definitely I think look at our fabrics beyond just oh that's 
got brown and green in it. You know, they look at it and go, wow, that was made by, you know, there's this people that, uh, you know, have this old loom. And you know, that takes them a week to prepare. They build this chain. They actually cut this by hand. You know, they've created jobs. They've not shipped it around all these warehouses. They, you get it straight from the mill. Um, and I think, yeah, there's people can talk. People enjoy talking about that when somebody asks them, wow, this is really nice. Where, what, what is this? Where did it come from? And, and they learn from us, you know, the, the kind of the the army of you know environmentally friendly fabrics and the fact that it's now got no hardware on it and the reasons it's got no hardware is because it means it's easy to recycle and we're giving people not just a product I hope we're giving people purpose and pride and hopefully helping them be part of the solution that we we are all you know this problem we're facing of how can we just be kinder and and you know and be better custodians. Do you keep a ledger? Yep, we have a fabric archive here. Um, every bit of fabric that we've ever woven um, for ourselves or for clients, um, the experimental um, bits and pieces. So, yeah, so we've got a fabric archive that we're building um, here that, yeah, has a bit of fabric for every for everyone and everything we've ever created. Um, so, yeah, so there's the DNA of the design and there's the, the yarn qualities that went in. There was the kind of, yeah, there was the Persian rug mistakes that are also evident in there, which, you know, um, but there's just, it just, you know, it just humanizes it. Um, so, yeah, so we do have an archive of absolutely everything that we've ever, we've ever wove here. Because, I mean, that narrative is quite amazing, isn't it? As it? Not only for you as a company, but for the, 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 your customer, you know, having, you know, having that and then generations, hopefully after they've gone, well, not hopefully that they've gone, but hopefully the generations after them um, could then come back to you or to whoever's running Prickly Thistle and say, oh, you know, my great-great-grandmother um, had our new family tartan created and could we have a, you know, another 10 metres of it, so to speak. Have you encountered any um, knockback from the creators of traditional tartan at all? Um, I wouldn't say knockback. I would say a few other things. I love them all dearly and they all think I'm absolutely nuts. But that's okay because we need crazy people to do good things, I think, in the world. You know, history has proven some of some of us crazies, you know, people don't get us at the time. <laughs> but then afterwards they go, oh, they kind of had them. They were trying to do something. Um, but I think there is a, there's a mixture of things and that's fine. And that's absolutely fine for me. Is like one is there was a feeling of people thinking I'm not qualified, you know. So who's qualified to do something that's good, <laughs> you know? Some you know shoot me down. I'm not qualified to try and create jobs. I'm not qualified to try and bring back a a sector to its you know to a a, a region of significance. Um, shoot me down for talking about polyester being really bad for. For you know, for the planet, bad for your health, the microplastics. So there was an element of how can you talk about this or do this when you're not trained and you're not qualified? You've not been to the school of arts. You've not done a fashion show. You know, and I'm like, well, so people thought I wasn't trained or qualified, and so what was I doing? Some people were really understandably nervous of who, what, what was I going to do? What is this person about? Is she going to, you know, compete with my business? Um, and I try to genuinely, because it's a personal value my mother instilled in me, was actually, you know, was really being respectful and come in and compliment and come in and help and carve out your own. So there was, um, so there was a mixture of feelings. Um, I think after four years, 
there is a still kind of question over, you know, you know, what's she going to do next? Um, but I would like to think people are now going, do you know what, you know, fair play to her for doing what she's doing because everyone thought it would never work. No one no one could be bothered investing in old machines and having to train people again and take on a much higher cost base because you were producing things slower. I was paying for green energy. I was paying a good living wage. This is all the things that come into a B Corp certified company. I was buying my yarns from the Scottish mills, which is, yes, more expensive than mills elsewhere. But the point was, for me, I wanted to make it as authentic as possible because part of the, the tartan romance is this, you know, and it's massively funded by so many people overseas was they think this is so authentically Scottish. And I go, this is this is like, this is false marketing. This is lying. It's not that it's wrong, but we're selling under false pretenses here. And I wanted to do it right. I wanted to put that cultural um, appreciation and sense of pride back in there. So, yeah, so I think now they, I'd like to think they think, God, you know, fair play to Claire. Um, she's still going four years on. Um, and I, I'd like to think that we're now not just within the world of textiles. I'm starting to ruffle feathers in the world of science, in the world of government, in the world of medical textiles, in the world of engineering textiles to say, look, we've learned so much about natural fibres and fabrics. And wait a minute, we have to stop treating textiles as this little silo on its own. And it's just this, this nice little thing to have. It's actually fundamental and part of a massive circular economy solution. You know, natural fibres from plant and animal can be reused and reused. We can wear them. We can use them in vehicles. We can use them in home insulation, but we can keep the loop going because they're so incredible and they cause so little harm and they cause even less harm when they're in a re reused basis. You know, cotton can be massively um, thirsty with regards to water, but recycling it and keeping it going is amazing. So, so yes, I like to think we're ruffling feathers and um, we're making people just think a little bit about, um, yeah, the sort of, the don't know, don't buy, and maybe being less siloed um, and not so overwhelmed. Solutions are actually really easy um, if we just forget some of the noise where, um, you know, where, where it suits a lot of people to make things really complicated. It protects a bit of position. And um, for me, there is, we are, you know, we did all of this in a much better way. We just need to remember there were certain things we did. And, and ultimately, who's who can push that sense of direction? I think it's us, the consumers. Um, yeah, so it's trying to we're trying to connect on a really um, yes, our level of integrity, and I think that goes right back to Tartan. That's what it's been so famous for. You've been talking a lot about community and talking about um, the workshop and the machinery, um, and you know the amount of attention to detail that goes into producing um, a Tartan that you produce. I was wondering, do you, would you describe the process as a as craft or you know would you describe yourself as a crafts person or the people you work with as crafts people is there craftsmanship in in the work yeah i know it's it's funny isn't it around words um because over centuries they change you know they just change meaning and you know in the world of global communication people are redefining things all the time um on, on you know with intent or by accident so it's always really difficult and there's people stereotype on just one word and um, so craft yeah so what is the definition of craft and, and it might be different in every culture but I think what I like to kind of 
really sort of say is that, you know, we make, you know, we make with people, you know, people who are passionate, people who are highly skilled. Um, and it's very, very rare that things are made with that level of people and passion. You know, it's a lot of automation, and a lot of machines. You don't see the images of these things on these companies' websites or their, you know, their 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 product shots or their product shoots or the editorials or anything. So I think, you know, the definition of craft, I think it's really saying, um, and it's being transparent about your process and then going to your pricing as well, is actually, you know, um, yeah, just made by people. You know, we say made, made in Scotland, made with made by people, you know. And this is this I think is really important. It's that balance of actually how many pe- well-paid, respected people within your team have been involved in the making of that product. So yeah, so so craft, it's just yeah, and here here it's like, you know, we've had some negative interpretations of craft. It's just a craft thing. You know, they put it down, it's just a little craft thing, you know, do you make one or two? Um, and I think but then there is the craftsmanship and, and I come even from the world of uh, accountancy, you know, the the you know, why is even, you know, so you've got somebody who's a surgeon or somebody who's a qualified chartered accountant, and then you've got somebody who is, you know, a craftsman, but yet the craftsman's not quite often treated as 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 relevant as, you know, the the surgeon, you know, because it's actually it's craftsmanship. It's it's funny how I felt within the world of creative um or creativity, having come from a world of accountancy, quite often doesn't get the same credit and acknowledgement as to what's involved. Um, so yeah, so craft, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's, it's it's a hard one for me to say whether we are craft or not. But I can say that we proudly make with people, people who care, people who are cared for. Um, yeah, I mean the cr- the craft thing is definitely potentially problematic, but I, you know, I. I'm a believer that there needs to be a way of describing the complexity of the work that is undertaken by people outside of a um, factory environment. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and it's a good point. And it's actually how do you bring that back in, isn't it? How do you how do you protect that word? And so let's go back to the world, like the word of luxury and the word of sustainable and the world of ethical. You know, these words had a pure protected definition and then there's a few folk go oh we use that word people might think that about us but you know we don't need to show them we just use the word (laughs) you know so it's kind of really really difficult and it's and it's such a shame so um, and I think and yes there is using a word and I think that we live in the 21st century we have this incredible way of communicating and I think there is so much now that can be beyond just a word the visual transparency, the films, the the imagery that really you need, you know, are true evidence because the word is not enough anymore because so many people use the word and don't back it up. The auditor in me, evidence is coming out now, Sean. But I think, you know, I think that's really important. I think, you know, because we live in such a digital world, we can connect. I think we need to we need to kind of move forward a little bit with that. And say actually what you see is what you get. As I always do, um, I ask my chatting guests um, at the end what their luxury is. So what is your luxury? My luxury is I have I have, you know, I have life, you know, at the end of the day. I know I, I have I have I'm here. I can I can do something that I really care about. Um 
I have my, you know, my family with me. Yeah, I mean, to have life right now is a luxury, I think, you know, look what's happening in the world. No one can argue that that is, you know, it's not a yacht, it's not a new car, it's not this type of food, it's not your latest purchase. It's actually, you are safe and well and healthy, you have life. Um, and I think, yeah, that that's probably the only thing that luxury should ever be used in, you know, that that living is a luxury. And um, yeah, so... So, yeah, so for me, that's my luxury. Brilliant. Claire Campbell, thank you so much for joining me on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Oh, thank you, Sean. Loved it. Thank you to Claire for joining us. Thank you to Intellect Books. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, you can catch up on all previous episodes of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favourite listening platform or at inpursuitofluxury.com. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.